Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5. And the guys have some Bibles. They're coming up front, and then they're going to go to the back with those Bibles in hand to distribute to you. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. And it's marked at Matthew chapter 5. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word, so please do keep that for your own use. Matthew 5. When I was 19, I decided that I needed to leave the church that I had grown up in, but not for the usual reasons a 19-year-old leaves a church. Stuff like the college and career groups better at some other church. That wouldn't have been hard in my case, since our church didn't have one. Growing up, uh, we didn't have a youth group, actually, either. So it wasn't over that or any of the other common excuses you might hear My girlfriend goes to this other church, or this other place, has got a cool band, and a smoke machine that fogs the stage like a rock concert. I was not leaving the church I had grown up in, and that my father had pastored, and when he died, my uncle led. I was not leaving for any trivial things like that. Rather, I had become convinced that my church taught something false about how an individual has and maintains a relationship with God. You see, the church that I grew up in believed and taught that you could receive Christ as Savior and Lord, but that that was no guarantee that you would go to heaven. No, you had to keep yourself in relationship with the Lord, and if you did not, you could lose that relationship. I'll never forget meeting with the man who was then pastor of the church and telling him, that I'd concluded the Bible teaches that if someone is in Christ, he is so forever, that the Bible teaches something called eternal security. And I also said that if it were possible to lose your salvation, as our church teaches, then all of us would have lost it because we all sin every day. And he looked at me and he said, and I'm quoting, I've not committed a willful sin in 35 years. Now, I did end up leaving that church and going to one that taught what the Bible says about that most important issue. Now, I was very fortunate in that I had friends who had been taught better about these matters, and they influenced me, and I had attended a Christian school that accurately taught what the Bible says about a relationship with God. And I also had churches that I could choose from where I could learn and grow in my relationship with the Lord. But what if my church, with its false teaching, was the only game in town? What if all you knew was what the religious leaders told you? Well, that's the situation when Jesus gathered his first followers on a hillside to teach them, and then a crowd gathered round to listen in to what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The people had been taught by the religious leaders of the day a system that in their minds would allow them to meet the holy standard that God had given in his word, specifically focused on the laws that God had given in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And in order to make keeping the laws attainable, they did this, they redefined them. Specifically, they narrowed the requirements of the law to only require external obedience to it. Your heart did not have to be right or in it as long as you mechanically did what the law required and avoided what the law prohibited. 
Now, with that background, in that setting, imagine being an average person in the crowd the day that Jesus delivered this message. And he said in verse 21 of Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And five more times in the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said or it has been said. And notice six times then in this chapter he says, you've heard it was said or it has been said. And the focus is on what was said. And when Jesus would quote the Bible, he would most often not say it was said. He would say, you all remember, it is what? It is written. But here he focuses on what has been said because he was exposing the false oral tradition that the religious leaders had passed down and how it was insufficient as a way of keeping God's law. And that's why he says, you've heard it said through this oral tradition. It has been said through this oral tradition. And you see this battle between Jesus and the religious leaders several times in Scripture. And one of them, Jesus says this, Isaiah that is one of the prophets in the first part of your Bible, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then he goes on to say this about those hypocritical religious leaders. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. That's why now Jesus says in this famous sermon, you have heard that it was said or it has been said. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing precisely what my former pastor and so many churches and denominations do today. They restricted sin to only the act, not the heart behind the act. That's why my pastor could say, I've not committed a willful sin in 35 years. Because he had redefined sin to only mean, I've not physically murdered anyone. I've not physically committed adultery. But Jesus would not allow the commands of God to be reduced or to be redefined. And his correction in this sermon was both freeing and troubling to the people who heard it. It was freeing because it meant that all the religious leaders' onerous rules were not, in fact, God's requirement. But it was also troubling because it meant God's standard was actually much higher than they had been taught. And so it raises the question, how can anybody meet this standard? Beginning this morning and over the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus' correction of this misinterpretation of God's law. We're going to see that, in fact, we're all murderers and adulterers. And liars. Well, thank you for that, Pastor. But it is what the Bible teaches. But we're also going to see that God has provided a way for us to meet His standard of righteousness without lowering it at all. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, restricted the biblical prohibitions of things like murder and adultery to the act alone. Jesus extended those prohibitions to angry thoughts and insulting words and lustful looks. Today we're going to see what Jesus taught about murder. Next week, adultery, and then the other sayings that Jesus has to 
correct this misinterpretation of God's law. Let's pray and ask God to help us then. Father, thank you for quieting our hearts, settling our minds, allowing us to be here, allowing us to open your word, to see the words of the Lord Jesus, the powerful, authoritative words of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to what he says. Help us to submit ourselves to his authority, though it is at odds with the way we behave and think and talk. Because he is Lord, and we pray in his name. Amen. Each week, we insert in your program an outline for the message. If you don't already have that out, let me encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along with what we'll be looking at from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to, to 26. This passage teaches a couple of main points, and then you see I've got some subpoints there as well. The first point is this, Christians avoid what leads to murder. Christians avoid what leads to murder. Verse 22, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now this is speaking of unrighteous anger. There are two kinds of anger. There's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. This is speaking of unrighteous anger. There is a righteous anger And we see that righteous anger evidenced in a number of ways in Scripture. One of those is in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, has 150 psalms, and they are different types. And one of those categories of psalms is called the imprecatory psalms. That is an imprecatory prayer. So if someone is praying an imprecation on another, that is, they're wishing ill, they're praying ill, asking God to do ill to that person. And you have psalms in the book of Psalms called imprecatory psalms. One such is Psalm number 35 that says, May the path of my enemies be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. And then in the New Testament, you see the Lord Jesus himself getting angry. Remember famously on one occasion where he chased the money changers out of, out of the temple. So how is it that you know if you've crossed the line from expressing righteous anger to sinful anger? Hear this. Anger is right when it's due to an offense against God. It is sinful when it's due to an offense against us. Anger is right when it's anger because of an offense against God. It is wrong when it's due to an offense against us. The offense against God may involve me... So when Christians are persecuted, it obviously involves the Christian. But ultimately, it's an offense against God. And of course, we should be angry about that. But the ultimate offense is against God, and our anger ought to be motivated due to that. So although there can be righteous anger, ours is usually not of that variety. Ours is usually of the other variety, unrighteous anger. And so the Bible tells us, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Ephesians 4 says, In your anger do not sin. And here's how you can avoid sinning in your anger. Make it right. The issues that you have between you and another before you go to bed. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So Christians avoid what leads to anger, that is, unrighteous anger. 
And there are three kinds of things that, that lead to unrighteous anger. I have them for you in your outline. Angry thoughts lead to murder. Angry thoughts lead to murder. Now, when I say angry thoughts lead to murder, I'm not saying that all angry thoughts, of course, result in you or me physically murdering someone. I'm saying you don't physically murder someone unless you first have angry thoughts. Angry thoughts, then, are preconditions to murder. And since God prohibits murder, he also prohibits what leads to murder. In 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says very straightforwardly, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, with what kinds of thoughts is the road to murder paved? And again, most of us here, hopefully all of us here, will never actually physically commit a murder. But what kinds of thoughts pave the way that leads to, to murder? What kind of thinking is always behind murder? Well, it's this. In one way or another, it always involves thoughts of superiority over another person. We have somehow acquired the notion, I'm better than you in some way. And so I elevate myself and I cut you down in my mind. For me, personally, this thought process often happens when I'm on the road. I see how people drive, and I'm thinking unkind thoughts. And it especially happens when there's a backup of some sort. This past week, I take Annie from our house in Flat Rock to her school in Allen Park. We take 75 North. And every day this week, there was a backup for some reason. And so whenever there's a backup of some, some sort, I see people jockeying for position from one lane to another. They must be thinking, oh, look, there's 10 feet available in that lane. Let me go there. And then they speed up to get to that 10 feet and speed up to the car in front of them and then hit the brakes. And then they look for another 10 feet. And all the while, I'm going along in my lane thinking, you're an idiot. Why can't you be calm like me? Because the truth is, and, and, I take a little bit of joy, sinful joy. And when this person's going crazy, and then I just like mosey, I just look. <laughs> It'd all be okay if you just moseyed like I do. <clears throat> and the more I think and observe and think about it, the less calm, though, I become. Now, thankfully, it's never resulted in a road rage incident. But you can see how, if not arrested, how the process could lead there. And it starts with me thinking I'm superior in some way. I really know how this ought to go. You all don't, and you're making fools of yourselves. Murder always involves thoughts of superiority. When the act of murder is actually committed, the murderer has decided the victim does not deserve to live due to some failing or lack. This person does not deserve to live in the murderer's mind. And that moment of action is preceded by thousands of thoughts that lead to it. And Jesus says the thoughts then are murderous whether you ever get there or not. And in fact, for many of us, 
Given the thoughts that we have in those times when we are irritated, when we are angry at others and feeling superior to them, if it were not for the consequences that would happen, if it were not for the restraints that God in His common grace has graciously given, then the act would occur much more than it does. The moment of action is preceded by thousands of thoughts that lead to it. What the legal profession calls temporary insanity. You all know what I mean, right? Someone murders but pleads not guilty by reason of. But very often it's a, it's a temporary insanity. I just completely lost it. And the truth is the person has not in that moment been divorced from all of the thoughts that have preceded that, going on for months and for years perhaps. It's always preceded by moments of rational and conscious thought. So Christians avoid what leads to murder. And that includes angry thoughts. You, you see, you are who you are in terms of the interior life of your mind. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the heart is the center of the person, according to the Bible. That includes our thinking faculties, and it determines who you are and what you do. Angry thoughts lead to murder. I say secondly in your outline. Angry words lead to murder. Verse 22, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now both of these words, Raka and fool, are words of contempt for another person. So it starts with this thought process of superiority. The contempt that is at first only mental, but perhaps rehearsed, and then it comes out in words. Raka or you fool, both words of contempt. Jesus spoke Aramaic, and raka is an Aramaic word. It means empty. And it was applied to someone's thinking. We would say the person is empty-headed, a numbskull, a nitwit, a space cadet. Fill in your epithet. So Jesus says, you think you are, you are insulting this person because you are contemptuous of this person. And the particular contempt that's represented by that word raka is, I say in your outline, a word of intellectual contempt. Intellectual contempt. You're not as smart as I am. You're pretty slow, aren't you? Now, start thinking about that, friends. Start thinking about how many times you do that. At home? At work? If your co-workers were only as smart as you. And how many times do you think, and then at the water cooler, and then the lunchroom, you say, I'm surrounded by fools, idiots. It's a word of intellectual contempt, or at home. Parents, to say to your child something like, why can't you do anything right? Intellectual contempt. Why can't you be like? Or to say, you're stupid. Or how many times have I told you, implying that you're stupid? Now, we all have different endowments of intellect, an IQ. Uh, if I ever had an IQ test, I don't know. And I don't know what my IQ score is, and that's probably a good thing. 
probably be very humbling for most of us. But I do know that we all have different intellectual capacities, but I know this as well, and most important, intellectual endowment is not meritorious. The fact that you might have been born with a greater capacity for, for thinking and intellect than someone else is not meritorious to you or to me, and yet we act like it is. And yet the Bible says, asks this rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is to be, of course, nothing, including your intellect. And so if we have this superior approach and we have this intellectual contempt for others, it might express itself in, indeed, words. It might express itself when we're stating our opinion in a condescending kind of way. Well, no, it can't be that way. And you're looking at the person and you just can't believe that you're having to explain this to this person because of your intellectual contempt. So any words or expressions or looks that say you're inferior intellectually fit in this raka prohibition. The word fool, Jesus says you fool. It's a Greek word from which we get our word moron. But it meant more than just being mentally substandard. It had to do with one's character. So we can speak words then that demonstrate our contempt for one's intellect. We can also speak words that demonstrate our contempt for their morality. Words of moral contempt I have in your outline. Moral contempt. Now, Jesus says, you say, you fool, using it in that way as contempt for someone's character. And yet, some of you, if you're thinking, you know that in the Bible, you've seen the word fool. The Bible calls people fools sometimes. So how can Jesus say, don't say, you fool, when, in fact, the Bible says it from time to time? For example, Jesus said it. He said it of his own followers and of the religious leaders. Matthew 23, you blind fools to the religious leaders of the day. And then he said to his first followers, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. And then famously in the first part of your Bible, a few times in the book of Psalms, it says the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But then notice this next sentence. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. So how is it that Jesus can use the word fool, the Bible can call people fools, and then Jesus says, don't do this? Here's the difference. When the Bible refers to someone as a fool, it's a, a statement of fact about this person, where they are at that moment. It is not to be from us a statement of contempt. And so the difference is between a statement of fact and a statement of contempt. I have contempt for you. Because you're not like me. Raka is you're not as smart as me. Now I have contempt for you because you're not like me. And just like intellect is not meritorious, nor, friends, is our character, is it? Are you the way you are because you're better than someone else? And that would violate all that the Bible teaches. And in that same verse that I quoted earlier, what do you have that you did not receive? That same verse says, ask this question, who makes you different from anyone else? And the Bible's answer is only God's grace, nothing about you. 
So now if I start to do that, I'm able to look at other people, even people who have immoral character. And I'm still able to love that person rather than have contempt on them because I know that I am no better. We must never devaluate other people. No one is worthless. Pastor Kent Hughes tells the story of watching a TV show with his wife. She stepped out of the room for a moment. When she returned, she asked what had transpired on the program. He said this, A worthless dope peddler was leading the two boys astray. He says his wife scolded him. No one is worthless. And he says she's absolutely right. My sentiment was wrong theologically, emotionally, and socially. God loves everyone, even the debased sinner. Now, friends, in this convicting moment, I want you to think as I have had to think as I prepared this message. How do you look at people who are not living in the way that you are living? How do you talk about people who don't live the way you live? Do you talk with compassion, with love, in merciful terms, or with contempt? And if we speak in contemptuous terms about others, it says that we think that we have somehow earned, merited where we are in the way we live. How do you feel and talk about those in other classes? I'll just add this and then move on, but I want you to think about it. How do you feel and talk about those in other classes, especially when race is involved? Why can't those people do this? Right? Friends, we've got a political debate going on with regard to immigration. (laughs) I'm not wading into that. But as you state your opinion about whatever the political issues are of the day, make sure that your mouth speaks from a heart that has been transformed by Jesus and sees yourself as a beggar who simply tells other beggars where to find food. Jesus says, if you do this raka, you'll be in danger of, verse 22, the court. You fool, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. He's not saying that one is worse than the other. He's saying that both of these, both of these have judgment and even could lead to the ultimate judgment if they come from a heart of one who does not belong to Christ. The expression fire of hell in verse 22 comes from a Hebrew word that is translated valley of Hinnom. Some of you have probably heard the the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is a word for for hell in the Bible, the fire of hell. And this valley of, of Hinnom is actually a place. It's actually a ravine south of Jerusalem that was once associated with a pagan god Molech and his child sacrifice and disgusting rites that were all prohibited by God. And when King Josiah abolished those practices that, unfortunately, the Israelites had participated in for a period of time, he defiled that valley by making it a dumping ground for filth and the corpses of criminals. And so here you had this valley called the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. And it became a garbage dump where the rubbish would be burned would have smoldering fires, and that's why the Bible referred to Gehenna, the fires of hell. 
So these two punishments, court and the fire of hell, do not mean fool is worse than raka, but simply illustrating that all sorts of words of contempt are liable to punishment, ultimately punishment in hell, possibly. So Christians seek to avoid what leads to murder. Thoughts and words, and I say in your outline, angry actions lead to murder. Now, Jesus talks specifically in verse 22 about things you say, raka and you fool. And the only action that's given is the actual act of of murdering someone. So why do I say there are actions, plural, that lead to murder? Well, it's implied as included because murder itself is an action and all that leads to it, like the thoughts and like the words, are sinful. And that would include then angry actions that we take even if they fall short of physically murdering someone. Now, let me just take a moment here to make sure we understand the difference between killing and murder. In the King James, the fourth commandment uh, says, Thou shalt not kill. Not the fourth commandment, excuse me. It it says, uh, the sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. But it actually should be, Thou shalt not murder. And, And here is why. Uh, you will be angry at and kill a combatant in war, for instance. You'll be angry at that combatant. You will kill that, you will kill that person, and that's all, assuming it's a justified war, is something that the Bible would condone. And things like capital punishment are condoned in the Bible. The first part of your Bible, Genesis 9, says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And so God instituted capital punishment for, for murder. And in the New Testament, it's repeated. Romans 13, the authority, that is the governing authority, is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrong, wrongdoer. And so what's being prohibited in the Bible with regard to murder is, is homicide. Now, there are some actions that you will take that are justified, sometimes in war, capital punishment, where the result is someone's dead. They've been killed. But that's different than someone being, being murdered. And here, murder is, being, is, is prohibited and throughout the Bible. Now, remember this. The first relationship that you have is always vertical with God. And every horizontal sin is first a vertical sin. Every sin against people is always first a sin against God. Every vertical sin is always first a a horizontal sin. And so God says, if you're going to be right with me, that's going to need to express itself in your relationships with others. Now, what's at the heart of this anger that leads to actions that could ultimately lead to murder? What's at the heart of that? James chapter 4 tells us. He tells us it's something that we want. He asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you, the things you want? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Now, many of you have heard me talk about this whole hierarchy of wants that then go to what I 
need and then I must have and then you should provide it and if you don't provide it, you'll pay. That's the way it goes in our hearts and then comes out in our actions. I want something. I convince myself I need that something. I must have that something. You should provide that something. If you don't, you'll pay. And that something in James chapter 4 can actually be something that is good in itself. You may want peace and quiet when you come home from work. But if you want that so bad that you will sin against your spouse, against your children, in the absence of that, then that has become an idolatrous desire for you. And Jesus condemns those actions that could, if unfettered, lead to to murder. Christians avoid what leads to murder. I say secondly in your outline. Christians pursue what leads to peace. Christians pursue what leads to peace. I've had you fill in the word pursue. We avoid thoughts and words and actions in anger that would lead to murder if, if not unfettered. But we pursue actively. We don't just then not do that stuff. We actively pursue those things that lead to peace. So friends, it's not enough for you to say, I've got to learn to bite my tongue. It's not enough for me to be on the road and just go, don't give people that look. Where it has to start is in my thinking, in my heart. Where I'm thinking that I'm smarter than these people. And I'm taking joy in the fact that I'm smarter than these people. It's got to start there. So I pursue. I don't just avoid, but I actively pursue what leads to peace. And we do that, according to Jesus, with two kinds of people. The first is with Christians. We pursue peace with Christians. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Someone has said this about what Jesus says there in verses 23 and 24. Christ gives a remarkable picture here. The worshiper has entered the great temple of Herod with his sacrifice, and he's passed through the concentric courts. He's gone through the courts of the, gen- the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of men. Beyond him lies the court of the priest, into which only the priests could pass. The worshiper is standing at the threshold of the court. His hands are on the sacrifice, and suddenly he remembers that he has wronged his brother. And so he turns and retreats through the great courts. He must first make things right with his brother. And Jesus' point is clear. It's far more important to be reconciled to your brother than to fulfill the external duties of worship. Worship is merely pretense if we have offended others. Now remember I said earlier, the vertical is always most important. But the horizontal, our relationships with other people, affect our relationship with God. Did you know that? Psalm 66 and verse 18 says this, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not listen. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, there is instruction in that verse given to husbands, men, and it says, Husbands, be considerate in the way you live with your wives. 
as with the weaker partner and one who is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Do this, be considerate, see them as they are, as the weaker partner, but as equal to you before God, as an heir, an equal heir of the gracious gift of life. Do all of this, and then it says this at the last part of verse 7, 1 Peter 3, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. My prayers will be hindered if I don't treat my wife in a Christ-like way? That's exactly what the Bible says. Now, in this passage, verses 23 and 24, it's someone else who believes you've done something to them. And Jesus' instruction is clear. You go to them. And I don't want your worship until you get it right. So you've offended them. You go to them. But what about when someone has committed the wrong against you. And in fact, the Bible talks to that as well in another passage, Matthew 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, but then notice what happens. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So, if I'm the offender in our passage, I go. If I'm the offended, what am I to do? Go. So you've got two people, one of whom is the offender, one of whom is the offendee, and both are told by Jesus to go. And that means that they should meet each other on the way. We should run into each other, seeking to reconcile. Now, I'm almost out of time. All of God's people said and all of that. But my, how long I could talk about this. And what a stain it is on the body of Christ when people refuse to follow the directions of our Lord and to reconcile with one another. Many things that hurt in relationships. Many things that can hurt in relationships in the church as well. There are a few that have hurt me more over the years than attempting to go and reconcile with someone and to be rebuffed by a professing brother or sister. We pursue peace with Christians. And we pursue peace with non-Christians. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And Jesus is just piling on examples here to say, with all people, your objective is to pursue peace and to do and to think and to say those things that pursue peace. And even if it's an enemy, and I'm assuming then this is a non-Christian, because Allah, 1 Corinthians 6, Christians don't avoid at all costs taking each other to civil court. It's not a criminal matter, but a civil matter that we should as Christians be able to work out together. And so this is apparently a non-Christian, but the point is still the same. You're pursuing peace. I have your take-home truth then for you. The bottom of the outline. Christians cultivate godly affections toward others. Christians cultivate godly affections toward others. Now, I've chosen that word in the take-home truth, cultivate carefully. Because notice as we've gone through this, we've talked about thoughts and words and actions that lead to the ultimate of murder. And if you are going to follow Jesus' requirement then, you're going to have to cultivate on a daily basis, on a regular basis, thoughts about yourself thoughts about others, and thoughts about God that conform to His truth. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
Not thinking contemptuously of others and therefore not speaking contemptuously of others. That has to be cultivated on a regular basis. Jesus sets this high standard. My. And the religious leaders thought that they had created a system whereby you could achieve holiness before God. How foolish. Jesus says, my standard is much, much higher than that. And if you're awake and you're thinking right now, you should be saying to yourself, how can anybody do that? How can anyone live up to God's standard? You should feel the tension regarding the extremely high bar that Jesus sets for us and the reality of our own sin. How can that infinite chasm be bridged? Jesus is purposely saying, I'm, God's holy standard will not be lowered. And you religious leaders can't engineer it in a way to dumb it down and redefine it so that we can do it. Uh Uh-uh. It's intentionally high because it's God's character that does not change. That is the standard. That will not be lowered. But I also know you can't do it. And the gospel is this. The good news is this. Jesus has succeeded where we failed. Jesus never expressed sinful anger. He only expressed righteous anger. He lived the perfect life that we are required to live. He died in his death to pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed, including our angry thoughts and our words and our actions. And so we've got to lose the idea, friends, that we can be right with God by what we do or by what we refrain from doing. Jesus is saying the bar is too high for you. But I have come to clear the bar on your behalf. This past week, on Thursday, I had a phone conversation with my younger brother who was in, uh, living in Kentucky. He's lived in Kentucky the last many years. He called me to tell me that uh, he has been diagnosed with late-stage uh, colon cancer. And he has been told he has until the end of the year. Uh, so... Billy and I had a very serious conversation. And I said, Billy, we grew up in the same home. Our dad was a pastor. We know the gospel. You know the gospel. Have you been saved? Do you have a relationship with Christ? And Billy said, I have asked Jesus into my heart many times over the years. But it hasn't worked for me. That's what he said. It hasn't worked for me. And I was sure that I knew what he meant. Uh, But I explored and I said, what do you mean it didn't work? You mean that some of the habits that you have had didn't immediately change? That's what it means, what you mean when you say it didn't work. And indeed, that was the case. And he said, I don't know if I wasn't sincere or or what. But he said a lot of struggles and a lot of habits that have uh, harmed him over the years. And now he's at the end of his life and what does he do to that? with that. And so I was so glad that the gospel is good news, that Billy, you can't do it. And you're not called to do it, that Jesus has done it, and he calls you to receive the gift of what he has done in his life and in his death on the cross. And I gave that to him, and we prayed together over the phone. For him to receive Christ as Savior. 
Now, friends, that's the good news. Because Jesus says the bar is high, it's infinitely high. You can't reach it. But the good news is, I have reached it for you. And I reach it for you, and yes, you will begin to change after you come to me. But in the case of my brother, if the diagnosis is accurate, he just has a few months. And I said to him, you won't have time to change all of those things. But that's not God's criteria. God's criteria is, are you in Christ? Are you in Jesus? Have you received what Jesus has done? The thief on the cross simply said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Friends, God's bar is too high for you. It's too high for me. We don't excuse ourselves. We don't cease pursuing it. But we revel in the fact that in God's grace, Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves. And he offers that gift to you now. We're going to pray in just a moment. And you need to do this. You need to realize who you are. You're a sinner. You can't clear the bar. But recognize that Jesus did in his righteous life and paid the penalty with his death on the cross. Repent of your sins. Lord, I'm going to follow you. It'll be two steps forward and one step back and sometimes two steps back and one step forward. But Lord, I'm going to follow you. Then you receive Jesus Christ into your life as my brother did three days ago. Simply in his own words, acknowledging that he's a sinner. That Jesus died for his sins and asking him to forgive him. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, our God, our Lord, our Savior, thank you for your perfectly righteous life. Thank you for your substitutionary death for us. You died the death that I deserve. You lived the life that I should have lived. And you did it on my behalf. And when I came to you at age 19, and I placed my life in your hands, the righteousness of Jesus was given to me, a righteousness that I cannot attain. And I thank you for that, Lord, profoundly. And I pray that there are some in this room right now who are receiving the gift that you give, the gift of your life and the gift of your death applied to them. And for those of us who have done that, Lord, we want to be transformed day by day into the image of the Lord Jesus. Not because we have to to go to heaven, but because out of gratitude for who you are and because we love you, we want to and we look forward to heaven. We want to be like you, Lord. And so we ask your aid and your Holy Spirit and your word to work in us, to make us like you in our experience. You've made us perfectly like you in our position. Draw some to yourself in this sacred moment. And may we who know you, Lord, strive for holiness with all the strength that you provide. Help us to strive for an extraordinary holiness outside the ordinary. Help us to take the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ infinitely seriously with regard to our thoughts and with regard to our words and with regard to our actions. Thereby, may we please you and glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.